Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Well, we've got the kids, they've left because, you know what, pastor's in, so he has to do the sex talk. So that's what we're going to do. So I gave, um, I gave the church a heads up and you'll notice there's a lot less kids and families around. Um, funnily enough, there should be a lot more young adults here because like, if anyone needs a sex talk, it's the young adults. Um, let's not call it the sex talk though. <laughs> Is anyone up for talking about sex tonight? If not, you're in the wrong place. In the wrong place. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about, actually, we'll, we'll call this living straight in a curved in world. Living straight in a curved, curved in world. And um, if you've been with us, we're in this journey through the letter we call Ephesians. And we've come to the point where um, Paul is actually talking about what it means to actually have a sexual ethic um, as followers of Jesus Christ and what it means to be truly human. Um, but before we do that, it feels like I haven't been here on Sunday night for ages. I think it's been about three or four weeks. Unbelievable. Where have I been? Lazy Dave. <laughs> um, yeah, where have I been? So it was Chelsea last week, and who was the week before? Was it Eva? And then it was me. Okay, there you go. Um, this is one of those messages which I wish I was in two places at once because I actually need the entire church to actually grapple with this. Um, especially the parents and the grandparents. And any grandparents here? Any parents here? Great. We'll see what we do. Like I did last week, um, if you were here last Sunday morning, what I want to do is I actually want to frame this because if I don't frame this in a particular way, we're going to start reading um, chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians as if it's a kind of a to-do list or a to-don't-do list. It's almost going to be like this boring laundry list. You know, you do this, you do this, don't do that, make sure you don't do that. And all of a sudden, this vibrant faith and this vision that, that Paul's been trying to articulate has all of the life sucked out of it because we start looking at it as a list and that is not what Paul is trying to do. He's actually trying to frame this and he has framed this in a very particular way. So let me just frame it like this. Albert Einstein once said, imagination is a preview of the future. Imagination is a gift that every single one of us have. Do you use your imagination very often? Of course you do. We all do. Um, from young, uh, young of age to old of age, we all use imagination in very different ways. Uh, last week I was thinking about it and I was thinking about this message last week and lo and behold, guess what, who comes running around the corner? Jackson comes running around the corner in his Spider-Man suit, right? He's got all these suits. So one moment he was Thor. Anyone like Thor? He was thought he had his hammer and everything. He's got a cool hammer because you hit the wall and it actually vibrates and everything. You've seen his hammer, haven't you? He's got a cool hammer. So one moment he's thought, then he goes into his room, comes out, and then he becomes Spider-Man. And he's running around pretending to be Spider-Man. And what we have in our house, if you've been there, we've actually got these two walls by our kitchen and there's this gap, which isn't too far. So what he does, he spreads his legs and arms and he starts climbing our walls in the house. Um, my parents would never have let us do that. Mum, you would have never have let us do that. But Jackson, because we're such cool parents, obviously, he's climbing. He's dressed in Spider-Man suit and he's climbing up. He's trying to be Spider-Man. Imagination. There are times when um, Kayla's friends come either from school or from, uh, from church. They come over and I know like even Hayley, um, the, when, when Hayley comes over, how many different costume dresses, like 
Oh, seriously, they, 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 they go through every single Disney princess, I think. They're like Snow White and Elsa and all, all these things. And they come out and they're running around and all that. But kids have this great ability to imagine. In both of our churches, in Kalamunda and in New Spring, right at the moment, we have quite a, mirror, quite a number of couples who are right now using their imagination to dream about the very first day of being married together. Is that what you guys are doing? Are you starting to dream? That was a great engagement party last night. Are you dreaming? Are you imagining? You know, this morning at Kalamunda, we had another couple um, who got engaged. With, like, everyone's getting married. <laughs> it's like, you get a wife and you get a wife and you get a wife. <laughs> Anyone else want a wife? <laughs> but they're using imagination to imagine what their first day is going to be. And in the very same sense, there are also a number of people who, unknown to them, they're actually cultivating a life by using their imagination to worry about what is the worst possible thing that could happen. Have you met anyone like that? And they're usually using their social, their emotional, their spiritual equity in that such a way to imagine something that probably will never, ever happen. You see, we never use our, lose our ability to imagine. Where as we grow up, we actually change the way we imagine. But it's important for us to understand and recognize that imagination is something that God has given us and we never, ever lose it. Imagination enables us to actually comprehend, to interpret and to organize reality. If you think about it, you were thinking, you know what, church starts at five o'clock. So I need to actually, you can see that in your mind. So I need to actually organize reality in such a way that I actually walk in on time. Well done, guys, by the way. I walk in on the time at five o'clock for church. But that's what imagination has the ability to do. We see something and we actually orchestrate and change things and rearrange things in our life. You know, Mitchell wants to go to university. So guess what? He is like rearranging his entire life so he can actually get to that vision, that picture, that dream that he's seeing right now. We all use it in very different ways. And that is what makes imagination and dreaming so very, very, very powerful. And what we've seen so far, I don't know if you picked it up or not, but if you haven't, it's my job to fill you in. We've actually seen that imagination is an incredible thing that finds its way in this letter that we call Ephesians. In fact, what Paul is doing, he has not written a boring, dreary letter. I mean, like seriously, some people like go through the Bible and say, it is so boring, there's nothing. Is anyone else like that? You just need someone to actually show you what Paul's doing because what he is doing, he is prompting us and he is like compelling us to actually broaden the way that we see things, broaden the way that we dream, broaden the way we imagine. And he's actually doing that so we would actually see life differently. We would see what God is doing in this world and we would see our place in God's story in this world. And he's been doing this. But what's really interesting about Paul as he's going through uh, and writing this letter we call Ephesians, he is actually provoking our, our imagination. He's provoking our, our dreaming. He's using words like you need to be renewed in the attitude of your mind and, and things like that. But he is putting it and placing it in a context. He's placing it in a context that we call worship. Does anyone like worship? Anyone else like worship? I reckon one of the reasons why we do not engage in worship is because we do not understand how powerful that tool is of worship. It is such an incredible tool. And God's people have always had this amazing gift of worship within which we are to dream and we are to imagine. He's given us this. Israel, God's people have always had this because this is what worship does. As we worship, as we praise God, it brings this constant reminder of that our God is the King of the world. Amen? Isn't that good to know? 
Could you imagine if you honestly believe that our God is the King of the world? And not only that, it lets us know our place as God's blessed people. So you might be looking at me and say, Dave, you look a little bit like, if I didn't know better, you look a bit smug and say, yeah, you betcha. I know I'm blessed. I am, I am one of those particular, peculiar people. I'm blessed by God. Like even as we're singing Hosanna like tonight. Like in my mind, I'm thinking like this morning they introduced a song in Kalamunda and Jess is singing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And in my mind, I immediately, I'm thinking, my, my mind is going to Jesus on a donkey as he is approaching the temple and they are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, God saves. And they throw in palm leaves and palm trees and all in front of them. That's what I'm thinking. And then my mind's going to Ezekiel when Ezekiel said that the glory of God is going to depart the temple and it's going to go out of the east gate and but there's there's absolute devastation because if the glory of God leaves that means they're going to get dominated that means they're going to be in slavery that means that their God has left the building and there's this, this such devastation in their hearts but then there's another promise that God will return the glory of God will return and it will come from the east and as we read through the gospels we see that Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives from Bethage he is coming from the east the glory of God is returning and they are seeing God will save and I'm thinking wow, my God saves. He doesn't leave me where I am. He doesn't leave you where you are. He saves. I wonder if you need some saving today. God knows we all need saving because we are sometimes all messed up. But it provokes our imagination, you see. You're going to be singing Hosanna differently now. You better be. (laughs) And you know what? There's a thing of worship and praise, and this is exactly precisely how Ephesians starts with a burst, with an avalanche of worship. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. I mean, seriously? Every spiritual blessing. Could you imagine if you honestly believe that? Like, like, seriously, imagine if the Bible told the truth. Right? Seriously. Like, imagine if Jesus didn't lie and if God was like, for real, for real. You know what I'm saying? Every spiritual blessing he's blessed me with and he's blessed you with. Wouldn't it just, like, imagine how your thinking goes. Imagine how your mind will go. Imagine how that would remind your mind if you actually believe that. Worship does that. It's incredible. Every spiritual blessing, the very beginning of this letter, starts with this Hebrew benediction, this explosion of praise. And in the midst of this benediction, in the midst of this worship, in the midst of this praise, there is this expression that is used over and over and over again. And it is the expression which Paul is now outworking in practical terms for us in chapters 4, 5 and 6. And the expression is to the praise of His glory. As you read through that benediction, it comes up over and over again. We are to live to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. And what Paul is doing in the midst, in the context of worship, in the context by which we can imagine, we can dream who our amazing God is, who we are in His story. In the midst of worship, He is letting us know who we are, who we intended to be. He is letting us know the purpose of who we are. That if you're a human, which I hope you are, you know, we haven't got the cyborgs as yet, that'll come <laughs> in the future. I have no doubt. <laughs> it's an interesting conversation about AI and biotechnology and all that. But like, as that is kind of, like kind of happening, 
God is actually letting us know, Paul is letting us know that our intended purpose, the reason why we have been created is so that we would actually live to the praise of his glory. In other words, that we would actually reflect the glory of God in this world. If anyone had to ask me, Dave, why are you living? What's your life all about? I would easily let them know my life is all about living to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, that we are originally designed to actually relate to each other in life giving ways that we reflect this life-giving God to people around us. We are to reflect this life-living God to creation, that we are supposed to live with a posture which is open in life-giving ways. So to truly enjoy creation, to truly enjoy each other, to live according to God's design would be to reflect God in this world, or in other words, to live a life of worship, or to use Paul's expression, to live to the praise of his glory. You understanding that? But something happens in Genesis 3, doesn't it? Sin creeps in, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, instead of living to the praise of his glory, humanity starts living to the praise of other people's glory or other things' glory, and things get twisted and things get perverted like that. We are no longer living with reference to God. We are living in such a way as Augustine so eloquently actually said, he used this word picture, he says, we are living curved in on ourselves. I wonder if you can imagine that living curved in on yourself. I've got a bit of a sore neck, but let me try. It's like, there we go. Let me try to sprint. Oh, it doesn't work too well. Like that. That's actually the picture of living curved in on yourself. Notice when you live curved in on yourself, you can't relate to each other. You can't relate to creation. You can't even relate to God. In fact, the only thing I could see was my belly button. All I could see is myself. I couldn't see you. In fact, I didn't care about you. I was just not worried. I just didn't want to fall, right? That's what sin does. It makes us live curved in on ourselves. So everything is all about me. It's all about me, me, me. We become the most narcissistic people on the face of this earth because it becomes all about me. And sin has actually curved us in on ourselves. And what this condition does, it actually makes us truly believe that to be truly human means to be independent from God. And the individualism, personal freedoms, they now become the God of my life instead of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's what happens. And such a belief, anyone who holds such a belief, they will never actually live truly human. Truly human. So for three chapters, Paul's been actually sparking our imagination by telling and retelling the story of God. We've already learned some of these amazing things that, 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 that there's this grand glorious vision, a world where we are able to know God, the creator of heaven and earth, his father that we are now God's new creation. Isn't that good to know? That we're his masterpiece. That when God looks upon me, he says, man, that is my masterpiece. He looks at me and he says, you know what? I did good with Dave Ryder. I did good. You guys may think you could have done better, but Jesus looks at me and says, yeah, I did good. That boy's looking good. That boy's doing some great stuff. I created him in such a way to be a masterpiece and to show off my glory on earth. And you know what? He's doing exactly that. That makes me feel good. It's a grand vision, you know, that, that we are to be this new humanity, that we're supposed to be this new creation. We are to be what the Bible calls the church. Are you glad to be the church? Because a lot of people actually have a very low view of the church. And then we start doing all this missional stuff outside of the church because we're annoyed with the church, not knowing they're actually outside of the will of God. Anyway, that's for another, that's for another time. And that the church plays this cosmic role displaying the manifold wisdom of God. 
So Paul's been telling and retelling the story of God and, and letting us know that God's plan, God's vision is to return to the original plan that we would actually live once again for the praise of His glory, that we are placed in this curved-in world, but in the midst of a curved-in world, we are to live straight in a curved-in world, that even though the rest of this world may be curved in on itself, I can live in such a way that you're going to be actually have life given to you, that there's going to be human flourishing, that you can actually look upon my life and others can look upon your life and say, there is something so distinct about that person. You say, that's right. This is what it looks like to be truly human. I think that's pretty good anyway. <laughs> Listen to this quote before we start moving on. God purposes, this is by Fred Lehman. This is so, so cool. This is so cool. God purposes to set new creation in the midst of the old, redeem people in the midst of the fallen, love in the midst of hostility, self-abasement in the midst of self-assertion, submission in the midst of domination, to humanize and redeem the fallen structures. That's the plan, by the way. Anyone who thinks that your salvation is a ticket to get to heaven, you need to actually read your Bible and give your life to Jesus. And I'm dead set serious. Because God's plan is to actually use us to actually redeem the fallen structures and the fallen things in this world. God's plan has always been, from Hebrew Scriptures all the way to where we are right now, His plan has always been to use a transformed people to transform the world. So now Paul wants to talk about exactly that. What does it mean to be a transformed people? And if you don't get that, you're going to read the rest of this book as if it's a list of do's, and don't. And there'll be no imagination. There'll be nothing that actually brings any enthusiasm and excitement. But we need to understand and recognize that Paul is setting up a contrast that this is what it means to be truly human. And if you live this way, you're going to actually fall and be in line with God's plans and God's purposes. And God's plan is that He would use a transformed people, you and me, the church of Jesus Christ, to literally transform this world. Could you imagine? the fallen structures and systems of this world actually being redeemed. Can you imagine it? Could you imagine it? Because if you can't imagine it, you're not going to be able to participate in it. That's why we need to imagine. That's why we need to dream. And Paul wants to talk about this. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 14. So let's see how we go. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For all of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, 
rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So what does it mean to live straight in a curved in world? At this stage, I hope that we're getting a bit of an understanding as to who the church actually is. There's a lot of things that Paul's talked about when it comes to the church. The church exists as pockets of the kingdom of God, literally as pockets of the kingdom of God all around the world. That's what the church is. The church is literally supposed to be heaven on earth, these little pockets of heaven and earth, these little pockets of heaven breaking in to this world, scattered all over the world. In fact, if you want to talk about what it means to be missional and missionary, that's what it means. We are to establish little pockets of heaven all over the world because sometimes people detach mission from church. And sometimes people may think November 1, oh, you're going to go and do a makeover of Groveland's. Wow, it's really, I don't want people to mistake being missional as going and doing good works and good deeds. Now that's part of it, but that's not what it is. Being missional actually means that we go about into different regions, different areas. We go into dark spaces and because we go there, we actually populate those dark places with light, that being heaven on earth. That's what it means to be a missionary. We've had a grand history as us white people. I'm not white, but a chocolate white person. We go into other countries and we colonise them with our capitalist gospel and then they have to unlearn what we teach them. Isn't that right? We do that. But to be missional in Armidale, in Perth, in Kalamunda, means we are to go into places and literally populate it with heaven. That's what the church is. And being the church, we do these good works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk into. But don't get the good works before the church. Otherwise, you'll have these different organisations that operate outside of the church, having to go with the church, but the church is the bride of Christ. And if you have a low view of of the church, you actually have a low view of Jesus. We've talked about that. There's a whole lot of stuff that Paul's been talking about through this letter, through this letter. We've already learned that, that, that Paul's wanting us to be this church, this, this, the, the, this community that is truly human, this new creation. And now what we've learned, especially from last week, is that this, this idea of being a transformed people, we're going to have to learn how to be that person. We're going to learn how to do that. It's not like God kind of gets a, like a, like sometimes I think people think like God is like a genie who lives in the Bible, you know, rub it three times, open up and poof, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> No, we need to learn how to live this way. Last week we went through Ephesians 4. Let me read from verse 20 to 23. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupt by its deceitfulness, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. This is the idea that we're going to have to learn. In fact, that word disciple means apprentice. Has anyone ever been an apprentice before? Right? Has anyone had an apprentice before? Has anyone had a really good apprentice? Aaron's never had a good apprentice. (laughs) Becca has. When you're an apprentice, there's an assumption you're going to learn something, right? And when you're an apprentice, you have this assumption, I'm about to be taught something. 
So why in the world, when we give our life to Jesus and we call ourselves disciples, do we think we have nothing left to learn? By nature, that very word implies that we are going to be continually learning, unlearning and relearning and learning and learning. Even that scripture says that we need to take off the old self. And we like to use these little like illustrations that make it simple. You know what? I've got a coat on, so I'll just take my coat off. And that means taking off the old self. And we don't understand that Paul says, even if it is that simple, you still need to learn how to take off your coat. And that is why rocking up on a Sunday is simply not enough if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, I don't mind letting you know that. And if Sunday isn't a regular part of your weekly thing, guess what? Sunday's not enough. You're going to need more. You're going to have to learn more. This is a lifestyle. And understand this, when it comes to being a Christian, unlike any other arena of education, of learning, we are not learning principles. We are not learning formulas. We are learning Christ. We are learning a person. And that only happens in the community of Christ. So it is important to actually be engaged. But, but we are supposed to learn things in life as being this outworking of what we are to do. So as we come to chapter 5, I want us to recognize and notice that there is an incredibly huge, sharp turn that Paul takes now. It's as if he plunges. And sometimes I wish he doesn't plunge. Let me just take you through verse 2 and verse 3. Listen to verse 2, how beautiful it is. This is verse 2 of Ephesians 5. And walk in the way of love. That sounds good, doesn't it? Everyone's going, ah. ah. And it even gets more like sort of like, is I a word? I don't know. Gushy, gooey? I don't know. I'm not a guy. Anyway, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. It's like this thing, oh, God loves us. And it's almost like you're walking through David Jones or Meyer and you're going through like all the perfume section. Oh, that smells great. And Oh, that's lovely. It's almost like you're skipping through like, 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 like Araluen when the tulips are out. Oh, isn't it beautiful? What an incredible fragrance being offered up to God. This is like such a beautiful picture. And then all of a sudden, he like takes you and you go, vroom, plunges you to the depth of human depravity. You know, and he goes in verse three, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity or greed among you. Such sins have no place among people of God. It's almost like he took you from this, this place where these are perfumes and all that. And all of a sudden you're smelling the toilet, you know. Has anyone ever been to India? I remember the first time we went to India, right? And that door opened. That's it, man. <laughs> I can say that because I am in. Am I lying? I'm not lying. He says, let there be no sexual immorality. The Greek word for that is porneia. And porneia, bluntly and frankly, means sexual intercourse outside of marriage. That's what it means. I mean, you can sugarcoat it all you want, but that's what it means. <laughs> if you're a parent, when's the last time you talked to your kids about sex? Not you guys. Andrew was saying to me, apparently we're getting close to having to have those conversations. I'm like, are you serious? Do you have a working theology about sex as a Christian? It's a great question. Um, if you're married, you're working on your sex life. Does anyone have a great sex life here? I've got a great sex life. Has that been recorded? Yeah, it's been recorded. I have a great sex life. Are you working on your sex life? 
I was um, listening to an interview on theology and the war, and I actually had a sexologist on there. And she was, um, she was brilliant, but she was actually saying, you know, there's this huge need in the church right now for, for people to be discipled in their sexuality. And we get discipled in every single arena. We even have people discipling you in business. And we have people discipling, obviously, in spiritual formation and this and that. And she was saying, you know what, there is this great need in the church that we actually have people start discipling us with sexuality. Seems a bit odd, doesn't it? It seems a bit odd because we have church fathers, unfortunately, who have actually believed that sex was actually dirty and perverted and we're now living off that legacy right now. But thank God we're actually correcting that. And we're actually seeing that there's some things that people thought generations ago, and we thank God for some of the things they gave us, but there are some things which were simply wrong. Simply, simply wrong. And sex is one of those things that was wrong. Here's a big question which I ask. I've been a pastor here for over eight years, and um, I was actually saying, as it's been a while since I've had a sex ser- done a sex series. I think maybe we need to do it. It's been about three years, I reckon. It's been about three years. But here's a bigger question I have: like, why is it that every single time I start mentioning sex in church, everyone seems to go into their shell? Right? Because people outside of the church don't have a, a problem talking about sex, and sex is absolutely incredible. It's a gift, you know. Let me ask you this question. Here's an honest question for you. Who honestly thinks that God's view of righteousness exceeds your view of righteousness? Like, honestly, who thinks that? Only two of you? Seriously, oh my goodness. We think that, don't we? Don't you think that God's view of sensuality would exceed our view of sensuality? Because it does, it really does. So we're going to talk a little bit about sex today. And I think that if you're in this place, in this room, or if you're watching, and this is why I really, it's one of those messages, I just need to be in a couple of places at once. Um, it was funny, this morning I was talking to Kalamunda, and um, I, don't, I don't think Kalamunda's used to having sex talks, are they? No, no, no. Everyone seemed to love it. I had like a couple of people come. I, come, I had this lady come up to me and said, Dave, I needed to hear that 25 years ago. And then next to her was this guy, and he says, 25 years, I needed to hear that 55 years ago. <laughs> well, you're young enough, you're actually hearing it now, and you're young adults, and it's going to do you good. But if you don't have a working um, idea of, uh, a working theology of sex, that's actually okay, because we're going to start tonight. We can't finish tonight, but I want you to actually be intrigued about this, all right? And don't worry, all of us here have stuff in our life, okay? This is not a place where you, like, back in the day, you call people up the front. Seriously, if we call people up the front for sexual immorality, guess what? We'll all be called up the front, (laughs) okay? But understand, this is the vision, this is the picture of being truly human, all right? It's a picture of what it means to be a new creation and transform people, transforming the world, what it means to not be dehumanized, what it means to not be enslaved. And that's why Paul's talking about sexuality. But if you're in that place, we're going to start that conversation. And I'm going to ask a guy who I wish was my friend. His name is John Mark Comey. He's got a couple of minutes. How about you watch this? Because he is super, super smart and super cool as well with a cool accent. How about you hit that video? So I find that there's a ton 
ton of talk right now in the world with my friends, with my family, in my neighborhood about sex and about what sex is. And I also find, at least as a follower of Jesus, that there's a chasmic gap between culture at large's definition of sexuality and God's definition. By that I mean from the scriptures um, as Jesus would define it, as the biblical authors would define it. So basically, as I read it, culture at large defines sex as recreational play between two consenting adults. So it's just physical, it's just the biological coupling of two bodies for sexual release, and what's the big deal? As long as it's between two consenting adults, if it's mutually pleasurable, I mean, what in the world is the big deal? It's just play for grown-ups. And then the church often comes along and says, okay, here's all the rules, here's where you can do it, and here's where you can't do it but they buy into culture's definition of what sex is. And then basically say, well, you can do it, but only in marriage, and oh, by the way, only marriage between a man and a woman, not a man and a man, or a woman and a woman. And to most of us, that's just nonsensical. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you hear that, and you think, what, what kind of crazy, uneducated, traditional, outdated thing is that? It makes no sense. But reality, we have to get behind it to the definition of what sex is. So as I read the scriptures, as I read the teachings of Jesus, here's how I understand sex. In Genesis chapter 2, the word echad is used, that in sexuality, two people become echad, or it can be translated one flesh. This is a graphic, weighty word that basically means, when it's put together with this word flesh, fused together at the deepest level. That in sex, a man and a woman come together and are fused together at the deepest level. It is the bonding of two people into one entity, body and soul, physical and spiritual, because there's no way to bifurcate the two. So it's actually a much higher view of sex than cultures. Culture basically says, hey, it's just play, it's just biological, what's the big deal? God says, whoa, 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 no, it's way more than that. It's two people who become one entity and then over and over again enjoy and express love for one another through sexuality. Now, inside of marriage, this is beautiful because it, it takes two people and it doesn't let them drift apart. It keeps them together. It keeps them echad or one. But outside of marriage, this can be dehumanizing because it can turn people into objects for basically self-gratification. And then every time you walk away from a sexual partner, it's as if you tear echad, as if part of you is lost. And you do that enough times and it starts to hollow you out from the inside. So I, as a follower of Jesus, think that we need a higher view of sex than culture at large, just not a lower view. We need to get back to the mysterious, beautiful, powerful reality of what happens when a man and a woman make love. There you go. I told you he's smarter than me. John Mark Comer. Um, there's a book, actually, Loveology. Um, we went through um, a bit of the Bible study with some young adults last year. Um, but there's the book. I know there's some young adults in this church who actually um, did that. Um, John Marcom is one of, those great, um, one of those Christian leaders around the world who is deeply theological but actually profoundly relevant to this world. Have you ever met like those Christians who lead churches? Like, you have no relevance whatsoever. Um, and if you have a chat with me, I'm trying to, in conversations, try to get people in both of our churches to actually engage with great theologians, great leaders, great thinkers, because my greatest desire for you as a follower of Jesus Christ is that you would be a thinking Christian. Yeah. Amen? 
a thinking Christian, but John Marcoma is one of them. And like what I was encouraging this morning, if you're a parent, um, it would be great for you to actually say, hey, how, like if you've got a kid and you're a parent, how about you just buy the book and say, let's read this together. Or if you're a grandparent, how about you like, get like your, your grandkid, like teenager or young adult, say, how about we read this together? Let's learn together. Because in that book, he is a brilliant, brilliant author. Like he writes, you can just read it just so easily. But you're going to get a firm grasp on the theology. And sometimes as a church, we just say, no, 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 no. And you know what? We're living in a world where, where the world is actually saturated with this. And we simply need to do better than what we've done so far as the church. Does anyone agree with that? Yep. Seriously, when we're talking about the church actually having this cosmic role, and we, we talk about that there are principalities and there are powers that have an agenda to enslave and to dehumanize humanity. How many of us can actually acknowledge and recognize that sexuality, that's got to be, if that's not number one, that's at least number two. Right? And what we do as a church, this is what we do as a church, right? Knowing that sexuality is such a huge thing, a place where people get dehumanized, where people get hurt, where people get like objectionized and all this sort of stuff. This is what we do as a church. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And if we do do anything, we just say no, 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 and actually giving some reason why. And it's almost like we give no tools whatsoever to our teenagers and to our young adults and we just expect them to go out into the abyss and like we're just praying, we're hoping they're not, they're not going to do too much damage. Well, you know what? We simply need to do better of that. I have no problem talking to anyone in our churches about sexuality. No problem at all. You know why? Because I genuinely love you. I genuinely love you. So we'll talk about it. We need to talk about it, and we need to do a better job about it um, than we've done. Um, sexuality is one of those subjects, when I talk about it, like it should really, really like encourage all the married couples. You know, If I was to actually say something as biblical at the end of a sermon after talking about sexuality, something as, as, as profound and biblical as, as, as this, do not just be hearers of the Word, but go and be doers of the Word as well. Every single married couple should be going, come on, baby, let's go. Is that not right? Or you are a little bit too conservative right now. Is that not right? You're wishing Shaylee were here now. <laughs> <laughs> Where's that? No, anyway. <laughs> you know what? We just need to be open and actually be frank and actually talk about this stuff, you know? And the more we talk about it, even as awkward as some of you are feeling right now, the more use that you are of your pastor actually talking about it, guess what? The more use you're going to get to hearing it in your ears and the more comfortable you're going to actually be with talking about it with your kids and with your grandkids and actually giving them some actually guidance in this world that is trying to literally tear them apart. Right? It makes no sense that if there is this huge beast out there that literally wants to tear your young adult apart, that you actually give no tools. But that's exactly what we've done as the church. Has anyone read Song of Solomon? Right? Anyone has that as their favorite book of the Bible? Song of Solomon. I think it's interesting where the Song of Solomon is actually placed. It's placed in a context of what we call wisdom literature. Isn't it amazing that there is a book which is specifically about sexuality and relationship that is placed in wisdom literature? And it's kind of like, like almost you read the stuff, it's like, what, is that in the Bible? There's a couple of times we've done a series in Song of Solomon, we probably need to do one again. 
And it's brilliant. You know, chapter one's all about attraction. You know, when you first saw her, you go, mm, mm, mm. Man, she's fine. I mean, she's really fine. Anyone like that? <laughs> anyway, that's chapter one. Chapter two is about courtship. Chapter three to four, the honeymoon. There's conflict in the Song of Solomon. Any spouses have conflict? Yep, yep got some conflict. That's good to know. It means you're human. Chapters 5 and 6, there's a deepening of intimacy and there's this enduring romance, chapter 7 to 8. Song of Solomon is something that's in the Bible and talks explicitly about sex. I know there's a lot of people who look at it and say, oh, you know, they, inter- they actually interpret it wrong. So that's just an allegory for the church in Christ. Of course, well, anything could be seen as an allegory, but have you read it? Seriously? Just a casual listen, just have a casual listen about the wisdom that's to be gained. Song of Solomon 2, verse 3 to 7. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. Can anyone say that about their boyfriend? Yeah. Now, this is the boyfriend stage. Sorry, you're the husband. (laughs) I delight to sit in his shade and, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me by the banquet hall and let his banner over me be loved. Strengthen me with raisins. Different culture. (laughs) Refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. Get this, his left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. Oh, here we go. Like, what are you you doing, you young, young adults? What are you you up to? His left arm is under my head, his right arm embraces me. Verse 7, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Did you hear that, Dylan and Katie? Like, you may want to put your head over there and over there, but do not awaken it. It's not time. And, and this is what we do. So often we say no, no, no in the church instead of what we should be saying is not as yet. Not as yet. There should be tension. There should be desire. There should be something inside. Of with, all, with everything I am, I just want him and I just want her. And there should be something. There should be a guidance. There should be wisdom that says do not awaken it. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Try to visualize this poetry, Song of Solomon 4 verse 11. <laughs> Your lips Drop sweetness as the honeycombs, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Let me ask you, what kind of kiss is the Bible talking about? When there is sweetness and there is honeycomb underneath the tongue. Is that like a little peck on the cheek? What kind of kiss do you think it's talking about over there? This is an allegory of church and Christ. Are you kidding me? (laughs) But what kind of garden is this? What's the wisdom here? This is a locked up garden. This is this garden. Like, like, there there is this waiting. There is this longing. There is this patience that is called for. There's there's this patience that the world doesn't understand. But but there's this patience that wisdom would actually say, be patient. The, 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 The response is not no. The response is just not yet. Because there is something wonderful, there is something powerful, there is something that is so, so cool, so, so amazing. Listen to God's attitude. This is what I think is cool. Song of Solomon 5 verse 1. Now this is the guy saying, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my mirth with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Listen to what God says, or the godly counsel, the heavenly counsels. Listen to this. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. That is God's attitude when it comes to sexuality. Eat and drink full. God has no problem with sexuality. You know why? He created it. 
and he gave it for us to enjoy. Isn't that good to know? Or what about the wedding night? Can you believe that the Lord's actually peeked into the wedding night? Seriously, Lord, is there no secrecy, no privacy at all? Like going to the wedding night, Song of Solomon 4 verse 16, Awake, north wind, and calm, south wind, blow on my garden, that his fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. This is the wedding night. And you need to follow the thought, just follow the thought so you actually can see what is happening here. In chapters 2, verse 6, it actually says that his left arm is under my head, his right arm is embracing me. You know, that's what Dylan likes to do and I'm over there. <laughs> He's going to hate me by the end of this. But 2, verse 7 says, Do not awaken, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Chapter 3, verse 5, Do not arouse, do not awaken love until it so desires. And then we come to this night and it says, Awake! Did you get that? Do not awaken, do not awaken, do not awaken. Awake, come north. Do you know how strong the north wind is? Do you know how strong the south wind is? This is like, boom, this is huge. So don't awaken, don't awaken. There comes a mind, awaken. This is incredible stuff. This is incredible stuff. The church, true humanity, is to live straight in a curved in world. That our lives are supposed to be life-giving so it makes sense that for us, sexuality should be life-giving. It should not be selfish. It should not be dehumanizing. It should be life-giving. That is why we are given this wisdom. It's not something that to, in, to, to objectify, to enslave, to dominate. Because sexuality has become perverted when it actually rests outside of the wisdom of God, has it not? It has. So, of course, it makes complete sense that in light of this, Paul would say in Ephesians 5 verse 3, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Of course they have no place because our life is a posture which is open. Our life is supposed to be a posture where we are giving life, where we are not partnering with acts that are dehumanizing people. That makes complete sense, doesn't it? There's wisdom there. That's what he's saying. Because we are a people, we have this great imagination that God has given us. And we have got this imagination placed in worship where we know who God is. And we have this, this life there and these dreams. And we image and reflect the glory of God in such a way that we are seen as truly human. And we see the flourishing of other people around. We are people who are for true freedom, not for enslavement, right? That's why it makes complete sense. And I don't think there's any mistake that verse 3 is placed directly after verse 2. I think that's very, very specific. And, and it is a really sharp turn. It really is a deep plunge. I mean, like, like again, and walk in the way of love. That's great. Fantastic. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, he's talking about the cross. He's actually giving a definition of what love is because we think love is a feeling. Yeah, you might have some feelings, but there actually is a definition of love. And if you want to see the definition of love, you need to look at Jesus on the cross. That's the definition of love. But how incredible that he actually places this thing of sexual immorality right after this, this thing, this picture about Jesus on the cross. There is a really, really important reason why he does this and there's something that none of us can miss. The reason is because all of us seated in this room and including myself who were standing in this room, 
All of us need our sexuality redeemed. Every single one of us. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There are no super Christians, by the way. Anyone who comes up to you and tries to promote themselves as a super Christian, you should run, run, run from that person because there's something wrong with their head. (laughs) All of us need our sexuality redeemed. I can guarantee you in this room, that picture and that poetry of Song of Solomon, that's beautiful. That's incredible. What an incredible vision. But that poetry terrifies some people here. Because there are things that have happened. Like I said, the area of sexuality is an arena where dehumanization, enslavement happens so, so much in our world. The disorder, the sexual perversion, the domination that has entrapped so many people, it's actually placed side by side the redeeming work of Christ, which lets me know that all of our sexuality is redeemable. It is. There is hope. This is not a gospel where there is no hope. This is a gospel of hope. This is a gospel of light. Husbands. Any husbands here? We are to give ourselves to our wives. Our life is about them. Any wives here? You You are to give yourself to your husband. Do you know this? Let me say this. Wives, I've said this many times in this church, you are the only legitimate expression of your husband's sexuality here on earth. That's why you serve your husband. There is no other legitimate expression of your husband's sexuality. Husbands, we are our wives' only legitimate expression of their sexuality. And get this, generally speaking again, a woman's sexuality is quite a bit different to man's sexuality, right? Now, when it comes to sexuality, we need to understand as fellas, we need to learn what it means to love our wives. Women for us is pretty simple. We just want sex. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> you know, it's shame like our wives aren't even here. <laughs> But, but, but that's, a, that's a really big thing. Like, 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 like for husbands, we need to learn, we, get this, we need to learn how to love and serve our wives, not in a way that we want to be served, but in a way that's actually going to serve them. And wives, you need to understand that you are the only legitimate expression of your husband's sexuality. A marriage is when two people come together and serve each other. That's what a marriage is. As soon as you have one of the partner saying, I want this, I want that. You are like, that that is not the definition of love. The definition of love is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The definition of love is Jesus on a cross. That's love. Well, I don't feel like it. It has nothing to do with your feelings. Your life to your partner, to your husband, to your wife, has nothing to do with your feelings. It has everything to do with lordship. Is that not right? Now, what about the church acting in this kind of role, living out this cosmic role? Let me just quickly go through verses 11 to 14. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. 
It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That's very interesting. This is why it is said, wake up, sleep, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. We're not to partner with activities that are fruitless and, and dark. We are to expose the fruitless deeds of the dark. But the question is, how do you do it? So if there's sexual immorality running around in your head and you're doing stuff which is just like not becoming of a Christian, do we like get you up the front and like get you in front of the church and say, this person did this? Well, it seems to be a contradiction to do that when Scripture actually says not to even mention it. But there is something very profound about what we are to do. And the whole idea is that a person who comes into our community, that they would actually be able to wake up, sleep, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Understand this. This is the process of exposing dark, fruitless deeds, okay? The process is that dark, fruitless deeds are exposed by light, not finger pointing. That's exactly what he says. And is that not what happened to us? Let Paul tell us what happened to us. Verse 8 says, For you were once darkness. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say you were once in darkness? He says, for you were once darkness, but you are now, but you are, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Verse 13, everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Isn't it interesting that the process of dark, fruitless deeds being exposed is by light? And not only that, according to Scripture, light transforms darkness into light. Have you ever heard a story? I've had this many, many times as being a pastor. And you have people, you have couples, and they come from all sorts of different backgrounds. A lot of times people come from a background where they haven't got any Christian idea, don't know who Jesus is, a sexual ethic is the furthest thing from their mind. A lot of times they've grown up in church, but they've just heard a list of do's, don'ts, do's, don'ts, don't, do, do, don't. And they fall into this thing and they crave the God of this world, sexuality, and they pursue it and they run into it and they delve into it, only to realize it doesn't satisfy. And instead of filling them, they feel more and more empty. It's this hollowing out effect like what John Marcoma was talking about. It is a process of dehumanization and they figured it out. So they come into a community of light. Busted up people who love Jesus, who are the church, but are a community of light. And they come into a community of light and all of a sudden we use terminology like, oh, I feel convicted. Have you ever used that, convict, that, that, that word? Even that word has a lot of baggage in it. This is what actually happens. You come into a community of light and the Holy Spirit comes up to you and says, you know what, there's actually a pathway to being truly human. 
He comes to you and He says, there's actually a way that you can actually be satisfied and full. Now we call that conviction. And all of a sudden they've been doing this. They've got these deeds. They've been heading that direction. And all of a sudden they start turning around and they start walking as children of light. That is what Paul is saying. These deeds are exposed by light. So what does that mean for you and me as the church? Because I can guarantee you, we're going to have a whole bunch of people walking in those doors. You're going to have a whole bunch of people walking through your doorway at home. You're going to be sitting across the table at cafes, hopefully not Dome Cafe, but I shouldn't say that. I might get sued. (laughs) Dome's fantastic. You're going to be sitting across. It really is. Oh my God. God can redeem anything. (laughs) But what are you going to do? Well, this is what Scripture says. Just be a child of light. And when those deeds, when people who are living in these ways and they don't know, but there is destructive habits that are dehumanizing them. They walk into a beautiful community such as this that is a community of light. Guess what? The Holy Spirit's going to be tapping them on the shoulder and say, you're going in the wrong direction. If you want to be truly human, you start heading in this direction. And God will actually fill you. You'll be, you will have a satisfied life. Everything that has happened, everything that you've done is redeemable because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you start walking in this way, that is what happens. That's what happens. The the church is called to be straight in a curved in. Well, here's a question for the church. How are you going to live? Are you going to live straight or curved in? Because if you live curved in, I don't care how, how boisterous you are with singing the song. You cannot participate with the Lord in seeing this world transformed because it takes transformed people to transform the world. Again, it comes back to our vision and our place in God's story. It comes back to our imagination. It comes back to our imagination. I said last week, if you honestly think, I don't have time to rock up the church every week, number one. I don't have time to, to like, maybe go do a, a course. I don't have time to go to a connect group. I don't. Guess what? Your issue is not time. Your issue is imagination. You do not have the imagination to dream and picture yourself actually living in the story of God. That's the issue. You haven't got a time issue. You've got an imagination issue. But I like to dream. I like to imagine. What would it look like for a church to live straight in a curved in world? And you have principalities and powers that are trying their best to dehumanize your friends dehumanize your family. It could be something as simple as he's trying to get into your marriage because you do not have a working theology of sex and you're not serving each other in that area. This is why I wish I had the entire church here. (laughs) In a world where principalities and powers are trying to dehumanize The Lord is calling you and me as the church of Jesus Christ to stand up straight, to live for the praise of His glory, to reflect this life-living God into this world so that we would see hundreds and that we would see thousands who start living as being truly human in a world that is curved in. But that's going to take imagination and that's going to take dreaming And it's not going to take finger pointing. It's actually going to take a community of faith who would live as children of light in this world. And Paul lets us know 
that this incredible light that we've been given, it has the power to transform darkness and dark deeds into light. That's your sex talk. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you for your beautiful word. We thank you for your story, and I also thank you for everyone's individual story in this room. Stories that have highs and stories that have lows, stories that have twists and turns. Father, I ask that your love, that your word, your promise in your word, that you will come and that you will bring redemption, that you will come and bring healing and wholeness in Jesus' name. I ask that you would do in a moment that would have taken years, that you will come and that you would literally remind our mind with Holy Scripture, that even as your word has been articulated, as has been taught, I pray that it has been engrafted into our life. And even like the breakfast and that lunch that we ate today, as that food becomes part of us, I pray that this word becomes part of us and we live it out in this place. Father, we pray for New Spring Church, we pray for Kalamunda, that we would live as children of light, that we would live straight in a curved in world and that we would have opportunity to show many, many people the ways of Jesus Christ, that we would have the opportunity to articulate and also demonstrate what it looks like and what it feels like to be truly human, that our church would literally be heaven on earth, that we would understand this great good news, this gospel even more profoundly and that we would walk it out, that we would be a transformed people that is literally seeing this world transformed because of the power of the Holy Spirit and the redemptive work that Christ did on that cross. We thank you that it is finished, that we are now part of new creation. And I ask that we would walk in those good works that you prepared in advance, that we would walk into it as your masterpiece, as your treasure, as those who you love, as those that you chosen before the foundation of this world to love us. You chose us. Father, that all these things that we've learned, that they would come together in an incredible revelation that we would know what it truly means to be your children and to live in this world. In that way we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.